0: The series regarding the death, the burial, and the subsequent resurrection of Jesus Christ. The three questions are such: the first question, which is the one we addressed last week, was, um, Was Jesus really dead after his ordeal on the cross? And I think uh, Strobel did an excellent job of addressing that particular question. Uh, The second question is what we're going to address this morning. Was his tomb actually empty on that first Easter morning? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And then in the third question will be addressed two weeks from today, uh, because my dear friend Dwayne Deskins will be here. We'll address this on Resurrection Sunday. Did credible people subsequently encounter him after the resurrection? Um, Let's go to our text. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look at verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Here's the deal. If you believe in God, yet Christ was not raised from the dead, your faith is a waste of your time. Because God's sole intention and plan for the redemption of mankind and their subsequent salvation was the death, burial, resurrection, and subsequent ascension of His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Okay? that's that's the end of the discussion so you're you're still in your sins let's let's see what we can do here because the, everything on this scripture it hangs on whether or not Christ has been raised everything in that text hinges on whether or not the resurrection occurred so we're going to set about looking at that this morning now I'm going to be honest with you, as you found last week, this is not going to be all kind of Pentecostal. Shout, run, run the backs of the pews, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, that's not what this is. We are looking at the, the subject matter for really the purpose of equipping the saints. That's what we're doing. We live in an increasingly hostile world to people of faith. Amen? And the reality is, is that although faith is paramount, the reality is is you have a faith that's provable. That's important. Because anybody can run around believing in faith. I'm going to go here right now, okay? Look at me now. Islamic extremist terrorists run around in faith. Do you know what you have that they don't? Proof. When an Islamic extremist touches off a vest or flies a plane into a building, they're hoping, they're hoping That Allah is going to take them to heaven. And they'll do that all day long. But you and I, we have proof. You said, I'm living in 2023. What proof do I have? You have the proof that the people that were there saw it all happen. First eye. They saw this. They watched it. They experienced it. As a matter of fact, not only did they see it, did they hear it, did they experience it, they gave their lives for it. And I promise you right now, people don't just give up their lives on a fraud, a hoax, or a legend. Folk just don't, let me correct that, sane folk don't do that. I want to say this before we totally jump in the middle of this and get started. It's important to note that in this very, very brief this morning treatment of the question, uh, was Jesus' tomb actually empty on Easter morning, that much of the available uh, information establishing that truth uh, contained in the biblical record, and etc., uh, is not present in this sermon. And you go, well, what's the point of the sermon then? Well, here's the problem. Uh, As with my first message last week and my third message that's coming on Easter, I simply don't have the time to give to you and address every facet of the evidence in a single message. If I did, you would be walking out. Let's be honest. You may like me. You don't like me that much. The bottom line is that the volume of evidence is quite impressive. It's genuinely impressive, and I can only hit the high spots in a message one time on a Sunday. So with that said, I wanted to qualify that. Let's get started. When attempting to answer the question this morning, was Jesus' tomb actually empty on the first Easter morning, the issue is not. The issue isn't that He was nowhere to be seen. That is never the question. Realize that. When answering the question, was the tomb empty, don't ever think the question is that He was nowhere to be seen. That's not it. Here's the problem with that line of thinking. He was very frequently seen. He was seen a great deal. And He was seen alive. Then, He very publicly was seen dead. Do you realize that history, other than a handful of outliers, history itself doesn't dispute the concept of Jesus? with those same outliers in mind, do you realize that history doesn't take issue with Jesus and the crucifixion? No problems, really. Do you realize that history as a whole doesn't take issue with the idea that Jesus was buried in a tomb? They just don't have a problem with it. The problem ends up with this last thing. He was resurrected from the dead by the power of God. Now we have a problem with people. Here's why. And I need you to understand this. I need you to understand that so much of what Christianity rests on is founded, is framed by, and is completely upheld by whether or not Jesus Christ didn't come wasn't crucified and wasn't buried. The question is, did He actually rise from the dead like He said He was going to? Because if He did, then everything He said is based in the Word of God and His claim that He is divine. And therefore, you must believe it. Now, As I've said multiple times, He could come. He could minister. He could hang out for 33 plus years, get arrested, get killed, and get buried. And if that's the end of it, you don't have a Christianity. Back to our text. Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So the question is never that He was nowhere to be seen. He was always seen from the northern tip to the southern border and from coast to coast of the nation of Israel. He was seen, and that frequently. From the moment He began His ministry, it was public. Check out Matthew's Gospel. Just before, immediately before, the Sermon on the Mount in, in chapter 4, he has an entire megachurch following him based on his reputation and his word and the supernatural events that followed him. From the get-go, he was seen a lot. And then, he was publicly, vividly, graphically seen dead. Dead. And then a well-known, high-ranking figure in Jerusalem buried him in his tomb. Very public burial. And from that point forward, things get really sticky. Things get really problematic. The question isn't a matter of a missing body at all. It's a matter of Jesus still being alive to this day, even after the aforementioned public execution and notable burial. The empty tomb as an enduring symbol of the resurrection is the ultimate representation of Jesus' claim to being God. Theologian Gerald O'Collins said this, in a profound sense, Christianity without the resurrection is not simply Christianity without its final chapter. It's not Christianity at all. The resurrection is the supreme vindication of Jesus' uh, divine identity and His inspired teaching. It's the proof of His triumph over sin and over death. It's the foreshadowing of the resurrection of His followers. It, it's the basis of Christian hope. It is the miracle of all miracles. Although skeptics and detractors cast shadows of doubt on nearly every single facet of the resurrection narrative, there are others who, like you and I, assert that the case of the empty tomb is effectively closed because there is conclusive proof that the tomb was vacant on that first Easter morning. In order to directly address this morning's question, was Jesus' tomb empty on that first Easter, let's begin by looking at the Scriptures. Let's open where it should already be at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but we're going to go earlier than our text. Look at verses 3 and 4. Now, verses, verse 3 starts a, uh, a, a statement that actually carries out all the way to verse 8, but Verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 don't apply to this morning. They will apply on Resurrection Sunday, and I will reread these texts in its entirety at that point. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now look at this. This is where we're at. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now that though that statement right there is very, very, very important and you're about to find out why. This passage of Scripture is a portion of a creed. Now if you're not familiar with the term freed, uh, a creed in terms of its meaning, it's simply a system of Christian beliefs. It can be applied to things that are not Christian, but for our purposes this morning, it is a system of Christian belief. Said to have been given to the early church, undoubtedly going back to within just a few years, if not only a few weeks after Jesus' death, and was used as a statement of belief that Christians would recite to summarize their beliefs. Now, if you have trouble... Speaking your faith. If you have trouble speaking your faith, what is it that you believe? Memorize 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. That is your faith. Okay? Please understand that. This creed had been given to Paul after his conversion, likely in one of two places. He either received it in Damascus or... Uh, he received it in Jerusalem on a subsequent trip where he went there and visited and subsequently interviewed, if you will, Peter and James. According to Dr. William Craig, Ph.D. and Doctor of Theology, this creed is incredibly early and therefore trustworthy material. And I'm going to get into this here in a minute, but the earlier the creed, the earlier the statement the more reliable it is for obvious reasons. The longer the lag between the event and the subsequent system of beliefs, the less reliable it becomes. This comes very, very early after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Essentially, it's a four-line formula. And, this is self-evident as you read it. The first line refers to the crucifixion. The second line, the burial. The third line refers to the resurrection. And the fourth line refers to Jesus' appearances. As you can see, the second line affirms the, uh, that Jesus was buried. So he was in there. Okay, Craig, uh, and, and of course the fourth line, the resurrection Craig explains that this creed is actually a summary. This is why I say, if you need to know and how to, to express your faith, this is why you memorize first Corinthians 15 three and four, this right here. This creed is actually a summary that corresponds line by line with what the Gospels teach, chronologically, I might add. When we turn to the Gospels, we find multiple independent attestations to his to this burial story. In addition, Craig goes on to say, the burial story in Mark, Mark's Gospel, is so extremely early that it's simply not possible for it to have been subject to legendary corruption. Now, I want you to put a pin in those two words, legendary corruption, because I'm going to come right back to it. As a result, the majority of New Testament scholars today agree that the burial account of Jesus is fundamentally reliable. John A.T. Robinson, the late Cambridge University New Testament scholar, said that the honorable burial of Jesus is one of the earliest and best attested facts that we have about the historical Jesus. That's important. Now, let's hit the pause button. I just asked you to put a pin in two words. Legendary corruption. I want to try to explain what that means as briefly as I can. The idea of Jesus' resurrection being subject to what Dr. Craig just said and he called it legendary corruption is in reference to whether the gospel claims concerning the burial and resurrection of Jesus are subject to the effects of legend everybody understands what a legend is we we even can call we can extract legends out of our memory bank and refer to them Typically, legends, <laughs> and I think everybody's going to agree with this, are littered. They are littered with fanciful, exaggerated, and overblown ideas and images regarding the primary focus of a given story. For our purposes, the primary focus of the given story is, of course, Jesus Christ. A couple of examples of legends. I don't know if you guys thought of these or not, but... The first one that came to my mind, because I'm from Michigan originally, was Paul Bunyan. Paul Bunyan and his big blue ox babe. That's the first one that came to my mind. It took me a little while longer, but the second one that finally came to me was the legend of John Henry. The problem with the legend of John Henry is that no one here could probably tell me a single thing about John Henry's actual life. He hit the newsstands about 1840 or 1850 and he was a freedman who worked on the railroad drilling holes for explosives. That was the basis of the legend of, of uh, John Henry. So that was a, that's roughly 200 years ago that John Henry came around and we don't even know really who John Henry is anymore. That's the effect, the corrupting effect of legend. For the narrative of someone or something to be negatively affected by legend, Strobel threw out there the arbitrary figures of 150 to 200 plus years typically have to pass before the truth of a circumstance is then corrupted by legend. By negatively affected, I mean that the truth has been replaced in large part by fantasy the time frame of our first corinthians chapter 15 creed is not it literally measures in terms of just a handful of years if not weeks after the resurrection of jesus christ and it does not fulfill it does not in, is not in keeping at all with the demands and the requirements of legend because it doesn't take multiplied decades or centuries to appear. That's important information. When on your, uh, has anybody ever been in, interviewed by a detective? Or have you ever watched on a TV show or a movie where detectives talk about how unreliable witnesses are the longer the time goes by? Right? Same thing here. If reliable witnesses, and we'll learn on Resurrection Sunday, that there were a whole bunch of reliable witnesses that saw and encountered Jesus in person post-resurrection. And when He gave the creed in 1 Corinthians 15, He says, most of those folk are still alive. I dare you to go test me by asking them what they saw. So the reality is, is the fact that this is only a handful of years or weeks post-resurrection is incredibly important and was not negatively affected by the legendary corruption. Explanation complete. Let's hit play record and move on. That's where you laugh. Okay, don't patronize me regarding the actual physical emptiness of the tomb, as opposed to what some theorists would suggest that the resurrection was only spiritual and that Jesus resurrected spiritually, aside from that, it's important also to recognize that Jews at that time can't speak for them contemporarily. But at that time, Jews had a very physical Concept of resurrection. Meaning that the primary object of the resurrection for them in their mind and in their understanding was the bones of their deceased. After the flesh had decayed, after it had decomposed and and turned to dust, the Jews at this point in time would gather the bones of their deceased and they would put them in boxes for the express purpose of preserving them until the resurrection at the end of the world. Keeping that in mind, um, it would have been a contradiction of terms for an early Jew to say that someone had resurrected from the dead and yet their body was still left in that tomb. That's a contradiction. It's not how they believed. So when this early Christian creed in 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus was buried and then raised from the dead on the third day, it is implicitly but very clearly saying that in Jesus' case, the tomb was empty and nobody had been left behind. Let's look at several points of interest uh, to make a concise and powerful case for the tomb being empty. Um, First one, real short, real sweet. Early tradition. The early tradition that Paul passed along the 1 Corinthians 15 testimony, which is very old and therefore reliable source of historical information about Jesus. That's the first one. Second one. The site of Jesus' tomb was known to both Christians and Jews alike. So, if it weren't empty, it would have been a virtual impossibility for a movement founded on a belief in the resurrection to have come into existence in that very same city where the man was publicly executed and publicly buried this is a scholarly statement this is not from me please understand this we can tell from the language from the grammar and from the style that Mark in his writing of his gospel in his writing about the events surrounding the empty tomb and in fact regarding the entire passion narrative that he presents is from an earlier source. In fact, there's evidence that that was written as early as A.D. 37, which is much too early for legend to have seriously corrupted it. Oxford historian A.N. Sherwin White said it would have been without precedent anywhere in history for legend to have grown up that fast and significantly distorting the Gospels. Unprecedented in all of history. Let's move to our fourth point. There's the simplicity of the empty tomb story in Mark's Gospel. In other words, he presents it way too simple. It's just kind of anticlimactic for it to be legendary. Fictional, apocryphal accounts from the second century contain all kinds of flowery narratives in which Jesus comes out of the tomb in glory and in power with everybody and their brother plus the goldfish thrown in sees Him, including Jewish priests, other Jewish authorities, even Roman guards. That's exactly how you'd expect a legend to read. That's exactly how that would sound. Those are the way legends read, but these don't come out, legends, until generations after the events have actually happened, and subsequently, the eyewitnesses to the events have long since passed away. By contrast... Mark's account of the story of the empty tomb is stark in its, complici- in its simplicity, almost uneventful. Fifth point the unanimous testimony, unanimous testimony, that the empty tomb was discovered by women argues for the authenticity of the story because, and girls, Don't get mad. I'm just the messenger. Okay? I didn't write this. I'm not Jewish. I'm not even Italian. And I'm living now, not way back then. So don't anybody throw anything, okay? This is Texas. I'm sure some of you girls actually are armed. Don't shoot me. The fact that women discovered the empty tomb argues for the authenticity of the story. Because having the tomb discovered by women would have been embarrassing for the disciples to admit. The most certainly And most certainly would have been omitted or at least covered up if this story were merely a hoax. Or a legend. This embarrassment, the women in this case, the women finding the tomb and be, that being embarrassing. There's actually a a name for that, and it's called the criterion of embarrassment. Now, the criterion of embarrassment doesn't just focus on this story. The criterion of embarrassment is used to prove. Any story has validity to it because the last thing you're going to want to do is tell a story that releases embarrassing facts if those embarrassing facts weren't absolutely true. And so, unanimously, we see these women, all four, count them, one, two, three, four, Gospels, testified the fact that the empty tomb was not found by men, not found by Peter and James, not found... No. Women. This incites the criterion for embarrassment. Here's the thing. In both first century Jewish and Roman cultures, women were were, were esteemed very lowly. So low... Right here, you're supposed to say, how low were they? So low, in fact, that their testimony wasn't even allowed in formal courts of law and at trials. Why? Because their testimony was deemed unreliable. Okay, right now I'm looking to see if any women's arms are winding up. I just don't want to get hit by something. Luke chapter 24. Look at this. Now granted, the point that I'm making by this verse here could be that it's because the disciples lacked faith that they came to this conclusion... But it gives a great example of exactly what I'm talking about. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. And here we have the list. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. And here, you can hold a grudge, ladies, if you want to, with these guys, not me. But they, the apostles, they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Hence, hence if the resurrection story were a hoax women would not have been included as the first to discover the empty tomb. It wouldn't have happened. Okay, last point here, number six. The earliest Jewish attack on the resurrection story, listen to this word, presupposes the historicity of the empty tomb. Does everybody get that? Did everybody pick up on that? The earliest Jewish attack presupposes the tomb was empty. They accept that fact, and yet they're attacking the resurrection story. The earliest. In other words, both believers and opposition alike agreed that the tomb was empty. There was nobody who was claiming that the tomb still contained Jesus' body nobody so the question for me here is what is the earliest Jewish attack Matthew chapter 28 verse 13 you see the question the question was never that the body was gone that's not the question the question was always what happened to the body As a result, the Jews proposed this ridiculous, this preposterous story that the guards had fallen asleep. Now, let's look for a second at Matthew 28. Let's look at verse 13 since I already referred to it. Now, it's not going to be up here. Um, It's up here, isn't it? I love my sister-in-law. She's obviously more effective at this than I am. Verse 13 of Matthew 28, here's, here is the earliest Jewish attack. 13, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were sleeping. That's what needed to be spread abroad. Okay? That's important to know. Here's why. Let's stay in Matthew chapter 28 and let's go to verse 11. Listen to this. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and this is what's important. And reported to the chief priests, look at that word, Everything that had happened. So, the women have departed. Some of the guards now are departing. And when they reach the city, they report to the chief priests, now listen, this is important, everything that had happened. So, the, 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 the question here is, what has happened? Let's look, staying in Matthew 28, jump all the way to the first verse. Okay? Let's go to Matthew 28, verse 1. We're going to read through verse 7. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. Okay, so we've got the women, after the Sabbath, going to check out the tomb. Who's already at the tomb? We already know who's already at the tomb. The guards are at the tomb. Right? When they arrived, there was a violent earthquake for, because, an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone, and sat on it. I guess rolling back the tomb was a tiresome, and so he took a seat. His appearance... "...was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow." Verse 4. This we know why we know the guards are here. The guards were so afraid of him. Names the angel there. Fingers the angel. So afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Okay. So now we have a group of women heading toward the tomb... We have an earthquake, an angel shows up, rolls the tombstone back, sits down on it, and the guards that are present are now out like dead guys, laying there, and this happens. Verse 5, the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen. Just as He said, come and see the place where He lay. Then... Go quickly and tell the disciples He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see Him. Now I have told you. Right there in verse 8 through 10, Jesus connects with some people. Verse 11. Back to our Scripture that we had up here that I didn't know was up here. While the women were on their way, some of the guards... Here's the dead guys... The guys who were laying on the ground like dead men, they have since regained themselves and headed on into the city. Some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. What does that mean? In the creed in 1 Corinthians 15, we have a whole list of people. One group as large as 500 people having witnessed an encounter with Jesus Christ post-resurrection. Well, guess who's not in that creed? These guards don't know who they were, don't know how many they were, don't know if they were Jewish, don't know if they were Roman. It's irrelevant. The reality is, is that these guards witnessed everything that happened there, including the the coming down of an angel who incited an earthquake, opened the tomb, sat down and watched them quiver and faint, waited for the ladies to show up, speak to them, sending them on their way. The angel apparently departs because these guys finally get themselves together, recognizing the fact they've wet themselves, but they still have to go tell somebody what's happened. And they say to the uh, uh, high priest, everything that happened which means not only did they encounter the the angel not only did they encounter this tomb being opened not only did they see the women show up they heard everything the angel said to them they heard every last statement point being the Jews the chief priests and the elders they heard this story They heard this story. They had the information. They knew the tomb was empty. And the empty tomb was provable simply by walking out to it. They had the story. All of them, chief priests and elders, started with the assumption that the tomb was vacant. Why did they start with that assumption? Because they knew it was. They couldn't do anything Accepting. And we have to understand that in Matthew's Gospel here, I'm getting ready to close, I promise. In Matthew's Gospel right here, we see that the chief priests and elders devised a plan. And what did they do? We just read it. They gave a large sum of money to the guards. Why is that even remotely important? Here's why. If you're a guard and you crucify a criminal and they don't die while they're on the cross you die you bury somebody who ends up getting up and leaving or you've allowed miscreants to come in and steal the body, you die so a large sum of money, <laughs> that'd be really important and then the chief priest says don't worry about it if, if, if the governor hears about it We'll cover you. We've got you. Don't worry. And so from that point forward, those guards spread that story around. Everybody involved knew the tomb was empty. In conclusion, the idea that God raised Jesus from the dead is not at all improbable. Based on the evidence... It is, in, the, in fact, the best possible explanation for what happened. What is improbable is the idea. What is improbable is the notion that Jesus rose from the dead naturally. That's ridiculous. Why? Because naturally, dead things don't come back to life. In order for dead things to come back to life you have to have something super natural. Any hypothesis would be more probable than saying that the corpse of Jesus just spontaneously came back to life. Okay? But the belief that God raised Jesus from the dead does not contradict science or any known experience or facts. Nothing. All that idea, all that hypothesis requires is the belief that God exists. Bottom line, as long as the existence of God is even possible, it is possible then that he acted in history by raising Jesus from the dead. One of the towering legal intellects of all time and Princeton University University, uh, University lecturer Sir Norman Anderson concluded after a lifetime of analyzing this issue from a legal perspective that, quote, the empty tomb then forms a veritable rock on which all rationalistic theories of the resurrection dash themselves in vain. This morning... I hope, it is my sincerest hope and prayer that we have somehow or another assisted you in learning and going deeper in your faith in Jesus Christ. That's my hope. That's my hope. If this went by too fast, I need you to do one of two things, or both for that matter. One, get a CD. Listen to it again. That's not shameless self-promotion just the information's there. The other thing, go buy Strobel's book. It's little. You'll have it read in an afternoon. And you'll have heard a lot more than what I've given you. It's my prayer that you have learned and your faith is deepened. And with that said, I need to ask, is there anybody here at all who does not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Because if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, this is a perfect time to come to know Him. Here's the thing we talk about Jesus in church, and we do all these things in church that revolve around Christ. But the theology involved in Jesus Christ is as simple as this it gets no more complicated. Jesus came for the express purpose of dying for mankind's sins to redeem him by dying, being buried, resurrecting and subsequently ascending and seated at the right hand of God. Now, that's his reason for being here. Why the the the, the, the verse that everybody and their brother quotes, why did Jesus come and do this? Why because God so loved the world. There's no more about it than that. It doesn't get deeper than that. He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever. Whosoever. There, you realize there are no boundaries to whosoever? Now, we like to put boundaries on whosoever's Because a lot of whosoever's are really, really, really difficult to raise up. I don't know about you, but I may whosoever believes on Him will not perish, but have life eternal. And unlike a lot of us who like to tell people how bad they are, <laughs> and you need to get saved because you're going to hell. Verse 17 right there says God didn't come into the world to, to condemn the world but through His Son be saved. And then when He dies, is buried, is resurrected, last will and testament of the divine to mankind is this. Because what I've done, because of everything I've done, all power is mine. I've got it all. Then He says, and because of that, now, you go share what? The good news. The gospel. What's the gospel? What's the good news? That God provided a free gift of redemption for all mankind. And the only thing that we need to do is acknowledge the fact that we are lost sinners in need of a Savior, and Jesus Christ is that Savior. I acknowledge that and I accept Him as my Savior. And you just entered into. Salvation. Redemption's paid for. Salvation is your decision. Right? Anybody here who doesn't know Jesus? Because Jesus wants to know you. Revelation 3 and 20. I stand at the door and knock. And all you have to do is open unto me. And I'm going to come in. I don't care what your house looks like. I don't care if you're on the east side, the west side, north side or south side. I don't care if you're urban or if you're rural. I don't care if you're high flung or if you're low strung. I don't give a care. I'm coming in if you open the door. And you and I, we're going to sit down together and we're going to sup is the old word. We're going to sit down and we're going to eat. And you and I, we're going to be best buds. That's Jesus in a nutshell. Anybody, last try, last moment, anyone at all. Father, we love You. We praise You. We acknowledge You. And we give You all glory and all praise and all honor. You are God and we are not. And we acknowledge that and we thank You, Lord God, that You didn't just give us a faith. You gave us a provable one. And Lord, I thank You for who You are. And Lord Jesus, I just ask that You would go with this group of people. Those who are, who come here regularly and those who ha- who are... Um, uh, visitors at this place those who are family and those who are new friends Lord I ask all this in Jesus holy name and I ask that you be with them this week go with them permeate their heart, their mind their spirit with your presence and show them the way of the Lord I pray in Jesus name and we all said amen and amen you are dismissed